you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. The text is also printed in uh, in the bulletin on the next couple pages for you. This is a favorite psalm of many. I think I've probably said that a lot uh, throughout our series in the Psalms. This is one of my favorites or uh, one of the favorites of a lot of people in the church. People have memorized it. Um, With the most beautiful poetry here, David is articulating a sense of wonder at God's knowledge of him. God's uh, comprehensive knowledge, God's intimate knowledge, God's personal knowledge of himself. And that sense of wonder that David is articulating in this psalm, uh, it contains a hint of fear. (laughs) A little bit afraid, somebody knowing us as well as God knows us. But in the end, it blossoms into such a confidence that that David is able to pray uh, the boldest prayer. It's really hard for us even to get our minds around it. So, Uh, just ask you, do you delight in your relationship with God and find courage in your relationship with God in the thought that He knows you inside and out? Or does that seem to you like a uh, more like a dreadful exposure that you stand before Him um, uh, naked to His searching sight? Uh, Does it seem like a violation of privacy that you really rather not think about? Uh, Whether or not you think about it, it is true. Whether your, your thoughts or toward him, whether you realize it or not, <clears throat> it is true. God is all up in your business. He knows you better than you know yourself. So let's pray for his help to know that that's good news. Let's pray for his help to know that for the good news that it really is. Uh, let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray in Christ that you would take this psalm Uh, Drive it into our hearts, imprint it on our minds, make it a psalm, make it a prayer, make it a song that we know how to sing in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, uh, of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, your enemies. Take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A while back, a friend of mine sent me an article. It was an article about loneliness. I think there's actually been several articles and NPR radio things uh, done about loneliness uh, recently, in recent years. This was an article written by Jamie Smith. And uh, in it, Smith describes a research scenario, right? Researchers like to set up scenarios. And there was this one scenario where there's a group of people playing catch with a ball. That's all that's happening, playing catch with a ball. But there's a condition, and here's the scenario, is that one person in the group is sort of the guinea pig. One person in the group is unaware that she will never get the ball. She'll never get it. Everyone else has been instructed never to pass the ball to her. So as you can already imagine, it almost sounds like a cruel social experiment. I hope they had uh, Kleenex uh, at hand when the experiment was done. Didn't ruin these people for for life. Uh, This is what Jamie Smith says about about this uh, experiment. Try to put yourself in her shoes. You're in a group that starts a game of catch. The ball popcorns randomly among the group. Giggling and frivolity ensue. You keep waiting for your chance to join in the fun, but the ball never comes your way. You're patient at first. You smile when others smile. You inch a little further into the circle to try to draw attention. Your smile is becoming more forced now. There's still a sliver of hope that your exclusion is random until eventually you conclude the ball is never coming your way. This game isn't for you. You pretend you didn't want to play anyway. You stop trying. Smith continues, but this isn't just about a game. In fact, the researchers discovered that the ostracized person will testify to an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. The game just pulls the curtain back on a fundamental human need. Now imagine this isn't an experiment, but the shape of a life. Instead of waiting for a ball to come your way in a silly game of catch, You're waiting for anyone to call or drop by or speak your name. You can't even express it, but you're hungering for some sign that you are known. To be known is a fundamental human need. A pretty simple social experiment will demonstrate that. (laughs) And there are millions of people around the world right now who are languishing in actually chronic Loneliness, which has 
tremendous and very real social implications and uh, economic implications and physical ramifications. If that fundamental human need of being known is not met, we suffer in all kinds of ways. That need to be known is not just a result of the brokenness of the world. In the, in the biblical scheme, God made the world, He made it all very good, and then we broke it. In our sin, and our rebellion against God, and wanting to have nothing to do with Him, and walking away from a relationship with Him, we broke the world. But loneliness isn't just uh, something that happens uh, to us because we broke the world. When God made humanity in His image before sin and death broke the world and all our relationships... When everything God had made, he saw and he said was good and it was all very good. When at first there was only Adam, by himself, God looked at him and said, it is not good that he should be alone. So Tim Keller says about this, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. Adam was lonely because he was perfect. Adam was lonely because he was like God. Adam was made to share life with someone. Adam was made to be known and to know. So being alone was not good, even before sin and death entered the world. <clears throat> we have this, um, this fundamental human need of being known precisely because we're made in God's image, because the triune God, the one God who is three persons in perfect relationship because He made us in His image. He's the God of close, intimate, personal knowledge. If ever in your philosophy class you doubted whether true knowledge was possible, knowing someone else or being known is even possible, of course it's possible. The source of all life, His being is defined by close, intimate, personal knowledge. This is who God is. He's the Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father in the perfect communing knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing that we're created by this God for is to be known. Before we're created to know, we're created to be known by each other. But ultimately and most importantly by God. Before you're called even to know God, you're called to be known by God. And that's a fundamental need of your humanity. Now, because of our sin, because of the things that come along with that, the real guilt, real guilt, and shame that are associated with our sin, our instinct, without even thinking about it, is to protect ourselves from being known protect ourselves from being truly known by God. This is what happened in the garden immediately after the first sin. The man and the woman hid themselves. They didn't want God's scrutiny. So when we sin against God, we wish that we could remain hidden from His sight. We imagine ourselves closed off from His personal knowledge. Not that we actually are closed off from God's personal knowledge of us. We just don't want to admit it. We wish it weren't true. Because... Because there's a great fear that being known as a sinner means rejection. Being known as a sinner means rejection. Being found out 
That's the worst part of breaking the law, isn't it? It's being found out. I mean, you can speed. Don't just get, just don't get caught speeding. <clears throat> or you can steal from the cookie jar. Just don't get caught. Don't let it be known that you've stolen from the cookie jar, right? I mean, once the authorities know what you've done, then you're really in trouble. You can steal from the cookie jar. That, that feels okay, but getting caught for it, being known as the thief, being known as the one who breaks the law, <clears throat> that feels way worse to us than the act of breaking the law itself. It makes sense that sinners would be afraid of the idea of God knowing us. After all, he said, sin means death. It would mean our death. So it's probably best if he doesn't really know what's going on inside of us. We deceive ourselves into thinking that he doesn't know so that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that, hey, we're okay, that maybe we'll escape the condemnation that we deserve. <clears throat> maybe it won't be death for us. And when we do that, we close ourselves off from that fundamental need, that human need of being known, that thing we were made for. We shut ourselves off. It's a real catch-22. It's a real dilemma. To be truly human, we need to be known. But to be known as a sinner, as I really am, would mean my undoing, wouldn't it? But the good news is no. No, it wouldn't. Being known won't undo you. It will renew you. The fact of the matter is, God has known everything about you all along, whether you like to admit it or not. Before you speak, he knows what you're going to say. That's what the psalm says. Before you move, he knows where you're going to go. Before you act, he knows what you're going to do. He knew every single day of your life before there were any of them. Verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. You know me so well, you can, you can see... These thoughts forming in my mind from a mile away. <clears throat> it's not that God is distant from us, that he's afar, right? That's not what it's saying. A large section of the psalm focuses on his presence, the immediacy of God. And it's not just that God is sort of omnipresent or everywhere in some abstract sense. It's that he's always with me. He is always right up in my grill. Everywhere I go, even in the inconceivable places, even when I'm trying to flee, doesn't matter. His presence is inescapable. His attention is inescapable. And his knowledge of me is inescapable. The, the geographical cure, you know, if I just relocate and hit reset on life, things will be better. It doesn't work to get away from God. Imagining you're, you're going to start a new life with a clean slate under different circumstances and be able to leave that scrutinizing God behind. Um, because wherever you go, there you are. And so is God. Right there with you. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? From your face, literally. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. That's a fascinating testimony. We might expect David to say, if I ascend to heaven, 
you're there. Yeah, you expect that, of course. We understand heaven to be the part of God's creation, that inconceivable part of God's creation, where he is most present, where his presence defines visibly, defines the experience of our life. That's what heaven is. Of course he's there. We usually think of Sheol, this is the place of the dead, as the, the part of God's creation where his absence defines the experience. We think if you're going to escape God, go to where he's not. Well, Sheol, the grave, or even hell itself, that's, that's a pretty good bet. Maybe you'd escape his presence there, but no. Even if I descended to Sheol, in order to get away from you, you're there. This becomes known to us um, not as a terrifying concept, but most beautifully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recite it in the creed, which is the basic confession of our faith. Jesus died. He was buried. He descended into hell. He descended into the place of the dead. When they sealed him in the tomb that night, his light filled even the darkest place. His presence filled even the emptiest place. You couldn't get away from Jesus if you tried, even if you fled to the land of the dead, because he's gone even there in order to be God with you anywhere. We laugh about it uh, when we talk about people becoming members of the church here. But it's really the most profound thing. We are here because we tried to get away from Jesus, but we failed. We can't do it. We tried to close ourselves off from being known by God, but we failed. He has hounded us wherever we've gone, and his love will pursue us all our days. He really is with us always. He really does know us all the way down. And even so, He still loves us. That's what you learn in the Gospel. God knew full well who you were long before you showed up here in this world. He knows what's going on inside your heart and your mind at every moment, and He still came to be with you. Being known by Him doesn't mean you're undoing. It means you're renewing. Whether you think about Him much or not, He still thinks about you all the time. He never turns His thoughts away from you. Um, have you ever seen a microscopic picture? You've probably seen it on Facebook. You see the little things on Facebook all the time. A uh, microscopic picture of just regular old beach sand. Just beach sand. right? Boring old handful of beach sand, and you zoom way in on it and see... You what it really is, it's fascinating. Each little grain of sand is a wonder. There's little bits of shell there. There's a whole variety of colors there. It's amazing. A boring old handful of sand, when you look at it, it's, it's fascinating. Imagine walking on a beach where the ground beneath your feet is literally composed of countless wonders. Countless wonders that you're walking on. Imagine all the beaches in all the world, all the sand. Yahweh's thoughts of you are more numerous and more wonderful than that. And this God sent his son to die for the forgiveness of your sins 
because he knows you and loves you. His comprehensive, intimate, personal knowledge of you is far from being a threat to your existence. It's the foundation for your existence and for your salvation. You exist. You are forgiven. You are justified and declared righteous. You are accepted. You're included. You're not alone. You're included, and you're glorified in Jesus Christ because it says God foreknew you. He knew you before you came into being. It's not because he knows what you're like, that you're really good on the inside. It's just because he knows you personally and intimately. And that, that, that word knowing in the scriptures, it's, um, it's more than just an intellectual knowledge, right? Of course, he could put everything about you in a spreadsheet. That's not what uh, this knowledge is. It's the knowledge where a man knows his wife, and that means they come together on their wedding night. Personal, intimate knowledge. And that's the foundation for your salvation. I confess, I don't know exactly what this means. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't wrap my mind around this. I get my mind around God's knowledge of me and everything that means. I can't wrap my mind around it, but I don't have to. Because I'm not saved based on my understanding. I'm not saved based on my knowledge, not even my knowledge of God. I'm, I'm saved because of His knowledge of me. <clears throat> God knows me, and that's what really matters in my relationship with Him, ultimately. I can rest in the fact that I am so utterly known by God, even though I don't know Him as much as I'd like to know Him, even though I don't know myself as well as He knows me, even though I don't like much of what I do know about myself, and even though I know myself to be really a sinner undeserving of God's care, I can rest in the fact that God knows me, inside and out. In spite of all your attempts to close yourself off from Him, to hold Him at bay, to not be known, in spite of all your attempts to escape His presence, in spite of all your sin, Knowing that God knows you inside and out and loves you anyway, it spurs you to prayer in ways that I'm not sure I can fully explain. So David <clears throat> prays in verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. And this is the argument some people give for not praying. Some, some would ask, why do you even pray if God knows what I'm going to ask? Why do I need to ask it? But being known inside and out by God compels David to pray. It compels him to pray. God knows all his requests before he asks. But David, knowing that, inspires David to make his requests known to God. I'm not sure I can explain that except to say... That prayer is the right response to God's knowing you. Prayer is the right response to His 
knowing you. It's the right response to his knowing you, that, that you're not all alone, uh, because he knows you, is to be in a relationship with him where you're talking to him and you're asking him for stuff. <clears throat> also, David confesses in the very first verse, verse 1, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. And at the end of the psalm, he asks, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He believes that God knows all there is to know about him, and yet he asks to be known. He opens himself up to God, even though he's already an open book to God. I'm not sure I can explain that either, except to say that that openness, that invitation, is the right response to God's knowing you. And that'll change your life. A desire for greater experience of divine intimacy is the renewal of the image of God in us, and it's the foundation for our true transformation. As he says in verse 24, See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. It's the foundation for true transformation inviting God into uh, to your life to personally know you. Here's another thing <clears throat> I'm not sure I can explain uh, in a satisfying way. It actually seems the most difficult thing of all in this whole psalm to me. Uh, there's a big section of the psalm that doesn't seem to fit. One of these things is not like the other. At least it seems that way when you first get into it. Starting in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Maybe some editor got it wrong, and that was supposed to be part of another psalm, right? <clears throat> oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. In a psalm about being known by God, my instinct is to say that such a prayer as this is impossible. How can you possibly... If God knows my heart, if God knows all my sins, if God knows all the ways that I've made myself His enemy, He knows that. How could I possibly pray that He would slay His enemies without the most blatant hypocrisy? without saying, oh, I'm not like that. Slay those bad people. I mean, David's enemies called him a man of blood. Here he is saying, depart from me, men of blood. They called him that. David knew that he couldn't build God's temple because he was a man of war who had shed blood. He says that about himself. So what business does David have calling God to condemn the wicked? He knows that God knows that he is wicked, that he is a sinner, equally worthy of condemnation. What right does David have to express such hatred for God's enemies? This is a dilemma, and it's one that people experience when they convert, when they become Christians, and they leave behind their old life and their old ways 
effectively condemning it. It certainly seems hypocritical to our friends who see us go through that process. Maybe they're not Christians. They don't understand what's taking place in our spiritual renewal. We had fully embraced those old ways with them. We'd fully embraced and given ourselves to those old ways that they still embrace and give themselves to. We were right there with them. What right do we have now to hate and condemn those old ways? It's the paradoxical right that's granted to us by God's grace, even though we don't deserve it. In Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, God has declared us righteous. And that is real, it's very real. He's declared us righteous. He has declared that we are no longer his enemies. He has known us right out of our old ways, right out of our our enmity with him. He's known us all the way into a relationship where we are the closest allies with him. His enemies become our enemies. When we're known by God in Christ... We are given the privilege, that's what it is, the privilege of grace, and it is even a right in Jesus Christ, the gracious privilege of no longer identifying as one of his enemies, no longer identifying with his enemies, even though in and of ourselves that's exactly who we are. He's given us the gracious privilege of becoming his allies to such a degree that we're allowed to hate his enemies as our own enemies. As we discussed last week, uh, as we looked at Psalm 137, this doesn't mean we say to God, point me in the direction of the enemy and I'll I'll cut him down. Um, It's always a request that God would exercise his judgment that God would slay the wicked in his wrath, that his judgment would prevail, not our own. But somehow, being comprehensively, intimately, personally known by God not only gives us the comfort of knowing that we're not alone, that we can pray as a response to him knowing us, not only grants to us to fearlessly invite God's transformational scrutiny into our lives, but grants us even the boldness to ask God to judge those who are really just like us. God's knowing is so definitive of who we are. God's knowing us so redefines our identity that we can condemn our old identity our, our own sin and the sin of others is just like ours. We can condemn it without fear of being condemned ourselves. And it's not hypocrisy. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being so free in being known by God? So free to be the beloved of God absolutely in spite of yourself. To hate what he hates. The thought is uh, wonderful. The knowledge is too wonderful for me. But without fully understanding it ourselves, we can rest in it and we can rely upon it. God knows me. 
and that sets me free. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it might seem frightening to us to sit with your thoughts of us. Not even to sit with our own thoughts of you, but to sit with your thoughts of us. Uh, We can't escape them. And if we really knew what was best for us, we wouldn't want to escape them. We would invite even further knowing of your part. And so um, we ask with faith, even though we can't understand everything this means, even though your knowledge and your thoughts toward us are too numerous to count and too wonderful to comprehend, too big to get our minds around, we ask that you would know us more deeply and that you would enable us to be transformed by your knowing us by sending your very spirit into our hearts and making us new in the image of Jesus, even making us to know uh, our own sins and being convicted of our sins and yet without condemnation. We pray that you would work these works in us. We know that you have been at work in us before we were even born. We pray that you would make us able to see your work Uh, in us, your spirit's work in us. We pray that you'd make us able to know that you really are present with us no matter where we go, that these thoughts that we have of you knowing us would change our lives from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.